Hello and welcome to yet another episode of Disastrous History. Now, this week we're going to cover a new-to-us disaster. This week we're going to cover a car crash. Now, this particular car crash was during a race. It was during the 1955 24 Hours of Le Mans race in France. Before we get into that, though, I need to cover a couple housekeeping things. So recently, I have revamped my Patreon to add some additional context to episodes in the past, and then also adding it to episodes going forward in the future. So what this means is, most of the episodes will have an accompanying article with it that has diagrams, pictures, videos, all of that kind of stuff, explaining the technical things that I go to during the episode in a little bit more detail with the photos and the diagrams. So for instance, I have uh, gone back and redone an article on the Grenfell Tower fire, explaining the stack effect and how it spread with videos and diagrams that I drew myself and videos and all that from the actual incident to give it a better explanation. So this particular episode of the car crash will have videos and diagrams of the crash and screenshots with things pointed out circled in the crash so you have a better understanding of what is going on. Now this particular benefit is only for the $7 level and the $15 level patrons. I actually added an additional level. It is a dollar level. It's just if you want to support the show, but you don't want to shell out that much, which I can greatly understand. I still have my $3 patron level. This gets you the episodes 24 hours earlier than everyone else. And also gets you my undying gratitude. My Patreon is disastrous history, just like everything else is. Uh, one more thing before we get into the episode. All of my episodes are currently being added to YouTube with subtitles, accurate subtitles. So if you would rather read the episodes and follow them on YouTube than listen to them on to whatever podcasting app you normally listen to them on, they are there now as well. So we are it is a long process that is taking a long time because unfortunately I go off script because I write a script every week. Uh, I go off script regularly, if you couldn't tell. So having to go back and figure out what I was actually talking about and make sure that the words are right and all that takes time. But we want to make sure that it's right so that if you go and listen to it, it's correct. And if you're reading along with it, it is also correct. So that is going up on YouTube. Also, Disastrous History. I'm also going to try and put up some more videos explaining uh, in depth with photographs and videos and all of that from different disasters. So that'll be great. Oh, one more thing I forgot about the Patreon levels of $7 and $15. I also do some talking about uh, current disasters that are going on. Like this week, I wrote an article about the Davenport building collapse in Iowa. I'm currently in the middle of writing an, uh, writing an article on the uh, wildfires up in Quebec and how they started and how they spread. So if you want to get in on that, that's also the $7 and $15 Patreon level. I greatly appreciate you all. Thanks for listening to this. Let's get into the episode. As a fair warning at the beginning of this episode, there are some graphic details of death and dismemberment at the end of this episode. So I just want you guys to be prepared. So if you don't know, the 24 Hours of Le Mans is a 24-hour car race. Quite literally, the cars run for 24 hours straight from the afternoon of usually June 10th to the afternoon of June 11th. The first Le Mans race took place in 1923 in Le Mans, France. It always takes place in Le Mans, France. It wouldn't be 24 hours of Le Mans if it didn't. There is also a 24 hours of Daytona in the United States, which is essentially just a ripoff of the 24 hours of Le Mans. 
Now, in order to understand how big of a disaster this is, we need to understand the place this race holds in the minds of Europeans. So we must go back to the beginning of the race. So unless you're a car or racing enthusiast in the United States, the 24 hours of Le Mans just doesn't hold the same weight to us as, say, the Indy 500 or the Daytona 500. Those are our legendary races that have stood the test of time. The Le Mans is the same way for Europe. Back in the early days of the 1920s, racing was incredibly popular across the European continent. It was Grand Prix racing. Now, for those that don't know, Grands Prix, yes, that is the proper plural, thank you, French, were races that the goal was to go as fast as possible for a set amount of distance. First past the finish line wins. That's how most races go. We in the United States are very familiar with go fast and turn left. It's a very ingrained part of American racing culture. But the organizers of the original Le Mans wanted to make a different race that tested different parts of driving a car. It's easy, well, not easy, but easier to make a car built entirely for speed that only needs to last a short amount of time. They wanted to test something else entirely. So rather than say, okay, you have to go this distance faster than anyone else, they decided the race would be, you have 24 hours to drive a farther distance than anyone else. So to win Le Mans, you have to have driven the most amount of distance in 24 hours. This tested not only the speed the cars and drivers could handle, but also the durability of the cars and the drivers. It is hard to make a car that can go fast and survive going fast for 500 miles. It is much harder to make a car that can go fast and survive going fast for 3,200 miles, which is what the winning distance was in last year, 2022, Le Mans race. This year's winning distance, because the race was only held last weekend, was 2,893 miles, which is a good bit less than last year, just distance of cars and how the cars held up and all of that. Now, a normal race tests a driver's endurance. However, the 24 hours of Le Mans tests a driver's endurance for significantly longer. Now, there have been several drivers who have attempted to drive the full 24 hours themselves completely alone without a co-driver for someone to take over so they could go to the bathroom and eat and all of that. There has only been one driver who has successfully completed it. That was in 1950. A guy by the name of Eddie Hall finished eighth in the 24-hour Le Mans, driving the entire time. Now, if you're thinking, how did he manage to go to the bathroom when he was driving for 24 straight hours? He was asked that question, and he replied, green overalls, old boy. He's British. I don't, I don't know. Anyway, moving on. In the early days of the 24 hours of Le Mans, it was teams of two drivers that would race. Now, after the 70s, it became teams of three drivers. The first race of the 24 hours of Le Mans was in 1923, from the 26th to the 27th of May. The racetrack is called Circuit de la Sarthe and was named after the river that runs through the area. The track at the time, in 1923, was 10.7 miles in length and was not actually a track those first years, but was public city streets that were blocked off to make the course. Which it more or less still is, honestly. Some of it is permanent racetrack, but a lot of it is actually public roads that they close off the morning of the race, and then they reopen after the race ends the next day. The race was organized by the Automobile Club de l'Ouest, and the first winners were men by the name of André Lagache and René Leonard. 
they managed to win the race with a winning distance of 1,372.9 miles, completing four more laps around the track than the second-place finishers. The race would continue on each year until skipping one year in 1936 due to strikes from workers in France, then it would be on a long hiatus from 1940 to 1948 on account of the whole France was occupied by an invading force, and then the track was occupied by the Germans, then bombed by the Allies, then destroyed more by the Germans, and so on and so forth. Also, several of the racers joined the French resistance during the war and died as a result of being arrested and executed by the Germans. There's going to be a lot of that in this episode because it was France in the 1940s. Just as an aside, because the dude was incredible and it gives you a general idea of how these racers were that were driving in this race, I want to talk about 1937 Le Mans winner Robert Benoit. He originally was called into the French army during World War I and eventually managed to transfer over to the brand new Armée de l'Air, essentially the French Air Force, and became a fighter pilot. After the war, he raced all over Europe, becoming the first person to win the French, Spanish, Italian, and English Grands Prix in the same year. He then went on to race in and win the 1937-24 hour of Le Mans race. But the Nazis invaded in 1940 and France capitulated. Not wanting to just let the Germans win, he smuggled himself to England where he joined the Special Operations Executive and was trained in various ways of irregular warfare, sabotage, how to avoid capture, how to smuggle, all those fun things. He then parachuted into France and went about causing general mayhem for the Nazis, along with a couple other famous racers from France that also were trained in these kinds of things. He would smuggle weapons into stash houses around the area and form sabotage cells, generally doing what everyone should do and make life awful for the Nazis. Eventually, the leaders of the cell he was working for were captured and the Gestapo were looking for him. He managed to evade them for three days before being captured and arrested. The Nazis were driving him back to Gestapo headquarters in Paris for a likely brutal interrogation and summary execution when he took his chance and literally jumped out of a moving car and was smuggled back to England. That was June of 1943. By October of 1943, he was back in France running more sabotage missions and generally ruining everything for more Nazis. Eventually, sadly, in June of 1944, he would be captured once again, except this time he would not escape and was executed at the Buchenwald concentration camp in September of 1944. That is pretty much the formula for early French race car drivers. Step 1. Fight in World War I and become either grievously wounded or a fighter pilot. Step 2. Come home and try to find the adrenaline from war again, but fail to do so, so start racing cars really fast. After step two, it diverges into two different paths. Path one is die in a fiery crash of some kind. It might be a plane, it might be a car, but it is going to be fiery and terrifying. Path two is become a part of the French resistance to Nazi rule and die in a concentration camp after causing mayhem across France. There are a select few who chose secret path number three, which is join the French resistance and cause mayhem, and then die in a fiery crash after the war ends. Now, there is a reason for all of those racers dying or in crashes. Racers in the early days didn't wear seatbelts, or oftentimes helmets, or have roll cages, or anything like that. They theorized that being launched from the car and killed hitting a tree, or the track, or whatever, during a crash was better than being strapped in and burning to death because the cars so often burst into flames. This is what we call foreshadowing.
So after World War II, the track was rebuilt by 1949 and the race resumed again after the 10-year hiatus. When the race came back, it brought with it a renewed sense of competitiveness. Before the war, the races had been absolutely dominated by three major car manufacturers. Of the 16 races held before World War II, nine of them had been won by Bentley or Alfa Romeo. New car manufacturers now had all the technological advancements that had been made during the war and were itching to use them. This absolutely sent the competitive feeling of the Le Mans into the stratosphere and made things much more intense. Car manufacturers like Ferrari and Jaguar and Mercedes-Benz entered their hats into the ring to try and win the quickly becoming legendary race. New car prototypes were being entered in order to ratchet up the speeds at which the cars could race. In 1939, the final year before the brief World War II intermission, the average speed was about 86 miles per hour, or 139 kilometers per hour. The year before our disaster, just five years back into racing, 105 miles per hour, or 169 miles kilometers per hour. That is a 20 mile per hour jump on average speed. That's not even top speed. To change the average speed that much, you obviously have to shift shift your top speed up but you also have to shift your bottom speed up as well this isn't just oh the cars are going faster at top speeds it's also that the cars are going faster through the turns and in the portions they have to slow down for this race was getting more and more dangerous and the track hadn't really been updated since it started in 1923 when they rebuilt it after it being bombed they just paved over it and made it new they didn't widen it they didn't change any of the turns or anything like that it was still the same track that was being raced on by cars whose top speed were 60 miles per hour in 1923 but these cars are now going 150 miles per hour now this had been a concern of many of the drivers during this race it likely was exhilarating but also terrifying to be going 150 on a road built for cars that top out at 60 and they wanted some changes to be made to make the race a bit safer feeling. Unfortunately, as we know from every single past episode, nothing changes until disaster hits. So before we begin with the setup to the 1955 24 Hours of Le Mans, we need to talk about the actual track itself back in 1955. The full length of the track in 1955 was 8.38 miles which is shorter than the 10.7 miles it was in 1923, and that's because the actual portion that went into the actual town of Le Mans was cut off and it made the track about two miles shorter. Now, I say the track in 1955 because it has gone through a considerate amount of change since then. A large chunk of it due to safety changes and things similar to that, partially because of this disaster. Now, most of the track isn't going to matter for the story because car crashes only happen in one section, but it's good to know the whole setup here, and it is a pretty fascinating track myself. I am a big fan of racing, so this was a very fun episode for me to do. So the first part of the track after the starting line is the pit straightaway. This is a narrow stretch of straight road with pit road on one side. In 1955, the pit road and the racing surface were not separated by anything, like at all. There was no wall. Cars just slowed down and drove to the side, while other cars just raced on by. It was absolute chaos. The next portion is the Dunlop Curve, which then goes into the S's. The S's is an S-shaped bit of road before turning sharply right at the Tourture Rouge onto the backstretch known as the Mulsan Strait. In 1955, the Mulsan Strait was a 3.7 mile long straight stretch 
where cars would spend almost the entire time at full throttle. This was wide open racing straight off the tight right corner and was one of the most dangerous portions of the entire track because speed was the game and operating for that long at full throttle gets some incredible speed going. Unrelated to this disaster, this stretch had two chicanes, essentially manufactured turns, added just before the 1990 race to force racers to slow down a bit. That's because the top recorded speed on this backstretch, while it was still one entire stretch, was 253 miles per hour, which is incredibly fast. Two drivers died in accidents on this stretch after careening at full speed into the walls on either side of the track. After that exhilarating drag race at top speed down the track, it then bends slightly to the right before coming to an end at a 90 degree turn called the Mulsanne Corner. We then travel down a slight curve before arriving at my personal favorite portion of the track, the Indianapolis Corner. This is named the Indianapolis Corner for two reasons. Number one, it is banked like the Indianapolis Motor Speedway with kind of a right turn. And number two, there are bricks underneath the asphalt in this corner just like at Indianapolis Motor Speedway. I am originally from Speedway, Indiana, and lived about three blocks from the Motor Speedway where the legendary Indianapolis 500 occurs, so I get excited whenever my area of the world is mentioned. The cars here have to slow down to negotiate the tight 90 degree turn after having hit full speed on the previous almost straight stretch. They then hit the next 90 degree turn, known as the Arnage. They then fly down another straight stretch, this one with a slight rise in it, back to the beginning of the track. This area is known as the Mazon Blanche, or White House, literally because there is a white house on the left side of the road they drive by. That is it. That is the entire reason for the name. It is not any more creative than that. Humans are really bad at naming things. And then from there, you go back to the start-finish line and the pits. Alright, so now we can get into the 1955 24 Hours of Le Mans race. The spectators and racers were extremely excited for the 1955 race. Mercedes-Benz was returning after a couple-year hiatus and would enter three cars in the race, after having not raced since 1952. One was driven by Juan Manuel Fangio and Sterling Moss, one driven by Carl Kling and Andre Simone, and one driven by John Fitch and Pierre Levey. All three were driving the same model Mercedes-Benz, the 300 SLR. There were plenty of other star drivers in the race, including one by the name of Mike Hawthorne, who was driving a Jaguar D-Type. Now, while we're here, I want to give a brief overview of the three most important drivers here. Juan Manuel Fangio, Pierre Levey, and Mike Hawthorne. Pierre Levey and Mike Hawthorne are the two main drivers in the crash. Juan Fangio was somewhat involved, but his life story is insane, so I wanted to cover it real quick because it is entertaining. So to start with, Pierre Levey was not his actual name, just the name he raced under in honor of his uncle. His actual name was Pierre Bouin. He was a Frenchman and garage owner who didn't normally race, but decided to in 1951. This was his fifth Le Mans 24-hour race, the first driving a Mercedes. None of them were at all interesting, minus one, the 1952 24-hour Le Mans. He raced the entire race himself. Well, almost the entire race himself. The man made it to 23 and a half hours. He was in first by four whole laps. He could have cruised to victory and won it, running the entire race himself without sharing it all, never getting out of the car. But in that last half hour, the engine failed and he had to drop out. The reason he didn't let his co-driver drive? Because the engine was busted and he thought he was the only person that couldn't get it to the finish line. 
However, many people believe that he actually didn't change over because he didn't trust his co-driver to actually drive well, so he just decided to do the entire thing himself. Moving on, Mike Hawthorne was a British driver whose most notable accomplishment was being the first driver to win the Formula One championship, which he did with a record low of only one win in the season. He won that championship, then immediately retired because of the death of his friend and fellow racer a few months earlier. Mike Hawthorne would then die three months later after he retired in a car crash. Like I said, it's a brutal world for race car drivers. The last driver I want to go in depth about is Juan Fangio. He was born in Argentina and made a name for himself racing endurance races there before being sent to Europe to race. He was an incredible racer. By the time of the 1955 Le Mans, he had won the 1951 and 1954 F1 championship and then would win the 1955, 1956, and 1957 F1 championships. So that means in the eight years that he raced in Formula One, he won five of the championships. In the eight years he raced Formula One, he entered in 52 total races. He won 24 of them. That is a 46% winning percentage. Of those 52 races, he was on the podium, meaning first, second, or third, in 35 of them. That is incredible talent. But that's not the real interesting story here. The real interesting story is from 1958. In 1958, he traveled to Cuba to participate in the Cuban Grand Prix. He had won the 1957 Cuban Grand Prix fairly easily, and had set the fastest lap times in practice for the 58 race, up until the night of February 23rd. He was on his way out of the hotel he was staying at with some friends for dinner, when a young man walked up to him and pointed a pistol at him. The individual said, Fangio, you must come with me. I am a member of the 26th of July Revolutionary Movement. One of Fangio's friends tried to intervene, but the kidnappers threatened to shoot his friend. So, Fangio went ahead and got into the jeep with the kidnapper. The goal of the kidnapping was to cancel the race that was about to happen to discredit the then-Cuban president. But, the then-Cuban president decided to run the race anyway, despite having his star racer get kidnapped right before the race and then be unable to find him. Now, it appears that no one ever actually planned on injuring Fangio. He was just kind of held to make them cancel the race and make them look bad so that, you know, Fidel Castro and the communists would look better. Um, but they just went ahead and ran the race anyway. And to further prove the point that the kidnappers never planned to hurt Fangio, they offered him a radio to listen to the race on which he says he declined because he was feeling nostalgic and wanted to race. However, after they heard of a massive car accident at the race, he was provided with a TV to watch the coverage after the hearing the news of the accident. The accident itself was pretty bad. After five laps, the corners of the track had become soaked in oil. When entering one of the turns, a local Cuban racer lost control and slammed head-on into a crowd of spectators injuring 30 and killing 7 people. The Cuban government initially believed the oil had been another attempt at sabotage, but one of the drivers had a leaking oil line and did not know it, so he ran several laps leaking oil all over the place and caused the accident. With the deaths of the 7 people and the 30 injured, 
the race was called after just six laps. Now, it's funny, not really funny, but the racers on the track did not know how bad the crash was. All they saw was the red flag. So the two in front decided to race each other back to the finish just to see who would win first. So the guy that was in second, the guy that was in first saw the red flag first and started slowing down before he could get stopped. The guy in second saw the red flag and realized that they were going to call it on whoever crossed the finish line first. So he just went ahead and zoomed past the guy in first to claim the victory. And when the guy in second confronted him with that, he said, hey man, just be quiet. We'll pool our winnings and split them in half so that they don't ask any questions and we don't have any problems. So the guy who actually won wasn't actually in first place when they called the red flag and officially called the race. It was just he happened to zoom by before anybody was paying attention. But they ended up splitting the winning anyway. But anyway, not long after the race ended, the kidnappers released Juan Fangio to the Argentinian embassy. After his release, he stated, If what the rebels did was in a good cause, then I, as an Argentine, accept it. So, he was kind of a cool dude. He was very chill about being kidnapped. He called it a grand adventure. Another grand adventure at that. And he broke the 50s racing curse himself and lived to the old age of 84. So now we are all set up for the 1955 24 hours of Le Mans. It's Mercedes versus Jaguar, a legendary F1 car racer in Juan Fangio versus the British driver Mike Hawthorne. We've got Mercedes coming back. We've got all of these drivers, all of these cars that have waited all this time all year long. They had that decade off to get back into this track and race and attempt to win one of Europe's most famous races. The race started out on the 10th of June at 4 p.m., and the first several hours were jam-packed and exciting for the crowd of nearly 250,000 people. These teams are bringing the top cars that they have. These aren't just regular cars. These are the prototypes, the stuff that they're experimenting on to see just how fast and how far they can push their cars to see if they can win this race. It's not about it's not about just beating the other team. It's about showing that your car, your country, because it's it's a German car and a French car and an Italian car and a British car. They want to show that their country makes the best cars in Europe. That's why Jaguar and Mercedes have such this rivalry during this race is because it's German versus British. Like Obviously, World War II wasn't that long ago. It's still fresh in everyone's minds. There's still that bitter resentment there. So beating the Germans again in an English car is going to feel really good. Being a Frenchman, driving a French car, or driving an English car, and beating the Germans is going to feel incredibly good. Plus, these cars are incredible for their time. They go fast. They are cool-looking. The drivers are cool. They're not back buckled in. They're barely wearing helmets. It's man and machine against the road. It is incredibly cool. The top two cars, the Jaguar D-Type with Hawthorne and the Mercedes 300 SLR with Fangio, were trading the lead back and forth. They were constantly resetting the fastest lap time over and over and over again the first two and a half hours of the race 
while at the same time managing to lap most of the cars on the track. Literally, just trading the lead back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, slowly lowering the record lap time for the track. They set the record time at least six times during this race in the first two and a half hours. Things were heating up headed into the night portion of the race. It was going to be an exciting 24-hour race just as all the others were. It would just end up being a terrible excitement rather than an exhilarating one. Now, it sounds like the Jaguar D-Type and the Mercedes 300 SLR were very close in terms of power and ability to drive. And they were, but there was one major difference between the two, and that was braking. So, real quick, let's do a down and dirty talk about vehicle brakes. If you remember back to the Lock Magantic episode, we talked a ton about train brakes in that episode. Today, we're going to talk about car brakes. So there are two main types of brakes for vehicles. There are drum brakes and there are disc brakes. Disc brakes are almost exclusively used now in vehicles. Disc brakes operate with the brake pads on either side of a disc and are squeezed onto that disc when the brake is pressed, creating friction that slows the car down. The other option for vehicles is drum brakes. Now drum brakes are only used basically in old cars. Drum brakes have a similar idea as the disc brakes, except these are contained inside a drum and the brake pad, the thing creating the friction against the rotor, is pushed against the rotor inside an encased drum. Now, during the early days of car manufacturing, the vast majority of manufacturers used drum brakes. This began to change in the 1950s as cars became significantly faster. You see, disc brakes have a major advantage over drum brakes, and that is disc brakes are essentially open air, so they disperse heat significantly faster. Obviously, when brakes are applied, the friction creates heat. Because of how drum brakes are built, the brake pads are entirely encased a metal drum. This does not allow the heat to disperse, and as the heat builds, the brake pads lose the ability to create friction. So let's say you're driving a race car at 125 miles per hour, and you're heading towards a tight 90 degree turn. You need to be able to brake and brake hard. One option is going to give you a consistent slowdown, one is going to slow you down, but begin to fail the harder and longer you brake. You're going to want the one that has significantly lower chance of failing, and those are the disc brakes. So, Essentially what I'm saying is that the disc brakes, when you're going, if you're going 125 miles an hour and you're going into a 90 degree turn, the longer you can maintain that speed and brake safely, the faster your lap time is going to be. With the drum brakes, you, ha you know that your brakes are going to heat up and if they heat up too far, you're going to lose the effectiveness to turn and get slowed down to actually make the turn, thereby crashing or crashing. So you have to start braking earlier in that straightaway and lose speed faster than the car that has the disc brakes because they know that their heat, their brake pad isn't going to heat up and lose effectiveness. So that gave the Jaguar D-Type a little bit of an advantage here. Not much, but a little bit of an advantage. But it's going to be a big issue here in a little bit when we get to the actual crash. Now, Mercedes did try and come up with something to help deal with this issue of the drum brakes not reacting as well as the disc brakes. And what they did was they put a hood on the rear of the car, kind of like a trunk, except the hinge was towards the rear and the opening was towards the front and they called it an air brake. 
So imagine on the back side of this car, there is essentially a trunk, except it opens backwards. So when they want to brake, they pop that up and it catches a bunch of air, creates a bunch of drag and slows the car down quickly along with the drum brake so that the drum brake doesn't get overheated as fast because the slowing down is also being helped by the drag of the car. It was an interesting idea in theory and probably would have been easier to install disc brakes, but you know, whatever. They didn't want to do that for whatever reason. I don't know. So that's what it is. So we are now two and a half hours into this race. Their Mercedes and the Jaguar are battling back and forth as everyone predicted. Fangio and Hawthorne are going at it over and over and over again. We are about 35 laps in. It has been fantastic racing all over the course. But they have to start their first round of pit stops. Now, there may be some racing fans out there who, when they think of pit stops, they think of a brief stretch of track towards the infield for cars to slow down onto pit lane, then they drive at a slower rate of speed safely behind a wall where they change in a pit box. Throw that entire notion out of your head. That is not how the 1955 Le Mans did it. You pit immediately next to where people were speeding by. There was also no room to slow down. You came off a slight right-hand turn and had to immediately brake and pull over into your pit. Then directly across from that pit was a wall. Well, calling it a wall is generous. Uh, it was a mound of dirt about four feet high that separated the grandstands and the spectators from the race. There was no fence, just this mound of dirt. I worry that I don't explain this super well, so I'm going to explain it again. Pit road was not an actual road. It was the side of the racetrack. They are three feet at most, four feet at most from cars racing by. Like there, there is nothing dividing where they are changing tires, where they are putting in gasoline, all of that from where the cars are driving. It is an immediate, you don't have anywhere to slow down. There's no, you turn and then you're in pits. Like there are pits right there. There's nowhere to slow down. There is absolutely nothing. You have to make sure you know what you were doing before you get there. Otherwise, catastrophe can happen. So on this 35th lap, coming up to the pit road straightaway, there were a group of four cars. The order of cars coming down the straightaway was Lance Macklin in an Austin Healey that was a much slower car in a different class, then the Ferrari of Mike Hawthorne, who was in first, then the Mercedes-Benz of Pierre Levey, who was not in second, was actually lapped by Hawthorne, and then further back was the Mercedes-Benz of Juan Fangio. He was in second and was trying to catch up to Hawthorne. Now, it's important to note that there is a slight kink just before pit road. So as you're coming up towards the pit road straightaway, there is a slight right turn. Not much, but just enough to require a slight turn and a glide down into the racing line. For those of you who don't follow racing, racing line is the fastest portion of the track where most people tend to gravitate towards as they're trying to make time up around the track. So... In order to get around this turn, you have to glide towards the inside of the track, and then you'll glide back out towards the outside of the track on the straightaway. Macklin was driving towards the inside of the straightaway to give the first place Hawthorne plenty of space to pass him safely. Hawthorne went around the outside of Macklin, but as soon as he got by, he saw his pit crew alerting him that he needed to stop for fuel and also to change racers. Now, Hawthorne was in the Jaguar with the new disc brakes, so he was able to brake hard and dive back to the inside towards pits with no problem. The real problem 
was Hawthorne was only about 60 to 80 feet in front of Macklin. This was not even remotely close to enough time for the drum brakes of Macklin to slow his car down to prevent hitting Hawthorne. He tried. Macklin said he put on his brakes and could remember begging in his mind for Hawthorne to look in his rear mirror and lift off the brakes and use some throttle, but he never did. Macklin felt his wheels start to lock up, so he swerved to the left to miss the Jaguar of Hawthorne. This was a critical point. At that exact same time, Pierre LeVay was getting ready to go around Macklin as well, but all of a sudden, Macklin swerved directly in front of him. With no time to do anything else, LeVay threw his hand in the air in an apparent attempt to indicate he wanted to go to the left of Macklin and maybe also warn his teammate and the car behind him of Juan Fangio that he needed to slow down as well. Now it's very likely, very likely, that LeVay tried to slam on his brakes and maybe threw the air brake as well, but it was way too late. His front right tire collided with the back of Macklin's car. LeVay's Mercedes climbed up the back of Macklin's car at approximately 150 miles per hour, 240 kilometers per hour, and launched into the air. Macklin felt a sudden lurch from behind, and then the hot air of LeVay's exhaust fly past his face as the car drove over his. Now, there is one thing I did not mention about these Mercedes 300 SLRs. They had a steel frame, but the actual body was made of an extremely lightweight magnesium alloy. So this car was light, and it caught air very well, and, and catch air it did. Imagine standing in the grandstands watching this race. It is the most legendary race in the entirety of France. Everyone is having a great time. All of a sudden, you see one car cut in front of another. The second car collides with the rear of the first, and then it is airborne, almost impossibly slow. The car is now flying 5, 10, 15 feet off the ground, headed directly for you. It is a silver car. It almost looks like a bullet flying through the air. It's likely that you know what bullets flying through the air look like, considering it's the 1950s in France. And it is headed to you, all thanks to that ever-so-slight kink in the track right there before Pitt Road. That is the last view a lot of people in those grandstands had. A large, silver car flying through the air at them. LeVay's car flew up in the air, at least 20 feet in the air, landed on top of the dirt embankment, separating the track from the grandstand, bounced again, hit a concrete staircase, and then exploded into lethal debris. LeVay, living up the I'd rather be thrown clear than burned to death mantra, was launched from the car and killed instantly when his skull was crushed against the track pavement. Now, this is already catastrophic and had killed several people when the car landed against the concrete staircase. The several people standing between where LeVay first caught air and the staircase remembered feeling the hot air from the exhaust and the sound of spinning tires flying by and seeing people get torn apart around them. They also remembered seeing LeVay still in the car as it was flying through the air before he was launched free and killed on the track. Now, the car hurtling through the standing people was bad enough, but somehow it was going to get worse. You see, the way the car hit the staircase caused the heavy parts of the car to be ripped free of the body. This meant the large pieces, the engine and the front axle for instance, continue on their momentum and plowed through the crowded grandstands, crushing people in the way. The engine literally 
catapulted past this staircase and just plowed through people like it was a catapult, a rock from a catapult. It just plowed people, it mangled them, cut them in half, the whole nine yards. But somehow, that's not even the worst. Do you remember that air brake that we briefly talked about? The hood on the back of the car meant to slow the car down? That was ripped clear of the car and flung at head level through the crowd like a deadly frisbee. I'm not exaggerating. It literally was spinning flat, and the sharp hood, the edges of the hood, decapitated several people before it finally crashed to the ground. Meanwhile, the car had come to rest on the embankment and then became fully engulfed in flames. First responders immediately showed up to put the fire out, and when they dumped water on the car to extinguish it, sparks shot everywhere and the fire got larger, setting several people in the vicinity on fire. The reason for that is because the car body was partially magnesium. Now, magnesium burns incredibly well once it gets going, and the car colliding with everything ignited the gas tank and the body of the car itself, which was, again, partially magnesium. If you remember, magnesium is what was used during the Blitz by the Nazis in their attempt to create the Second Great Fire of London. Attempt is a little generous. They did create the Second Great Fire of London. And in addition to burning extremely well and extremely hot, you cannot put it out with water. If you spray water on a burning magnesium fire, it reacts with the water and creates magnesium oxide and hydrogen gas. That hydrogen gas then ignites, creating a bigger fire. In order to put the fire out, you need sand, and a lot of it. Unfortunately, it would take a bit before they got enough sand there to actually put the fire out, so the car was left to sit there and burn. Now, LeVay was getting ready to head into the pits on the very next lap. He was going to run one more lap, and then he was going to head into the pits and switch out with his co-driver, John Fitch. John Fitch was in a tent with LeVay's wife preparing to take his turn in the car when they heard the terrible noise of the crash. Fitch told her to stay in the tent, and he went out to find out what happened. When he returned, she already knew her husband was dead by the look on Fitch's face. He didn't even say a word. She just looked at him and said, LeVay is dead. LeVay is dead. I know he's dead. He couldn't say anything. After... LeVay's car made contact with Macklin's car. Macklin's car hit the outside barrier, bounced off, and smacked into the inside pit wall, barely missing several cars that were refueling there. It then went back across the track and came to rest against the outside wall. Macklin was able to survive the crash and immediately climb out of his car and take stock of the situation. But he hadn't realized when his car ricocheted against the pit wall, it injured several people who were standing there. Hawthorne, meanwhile, after, you know, breaking in front of him and kind of causing the entire thing, had parked his car further down pit lane, got out of his car, and was in inconsolable. Hawthorne had to be convinced to get back into his car and drive at least one more lap so that they could make sure that all of the danger was out of the way, and then he could come back and take some time off and switch with his co-driver. Standing in pit road at the time of the crash was driver Duncan Hamilton, preparing to get in the car for his turn to drive. He was standing on the pit wall when LeVay's car went flying through the crowd. He looked down and saw one man dead at his feet. Nearby were two other men, either dead or injured, lying on the ground. 
He stated, The scene on the other side of the road was indescribable. The dead and dying were everywhere. The cries of pain, anguish, and despair screamed catastrophe. He was in awe of the sheer chaos of what had just occurred. But then his car showed up, and he stepped over the dead man and drove away to continue the race. Because that's just what you did when you're racing in the 50s. Now, laying in the middle of the raceway was a body which several racers thought was LeVay's at the time. It was not. That's how bad this was. It was not LeVay's body, but they could not tell. The crash had been so violent, and the wheels were spinning so aggressively on LeVay's car, that when the car landed in the grandstands, it caught the dress of a woman who had been a spectator, twisted her around, and launched her out onto the track, where she died on impact with the track. Now, there are two things that come up in every eyewitness story of this disaster. Number one is the scream. They all say it wasn't a single scream, but it was a scream in unison. Like everyone realized all at once the sheer scale of the death and dismemberment. The second thing was the bodies. Bodies were everywhere. And these weren't just bodies laying down. These were headless people. These were people that were cut in half, missing limbs. Like it was absolutely a battlefield it looked like an artillery round had gone off in these stands there were pieces of the car everywhere they were burnt bodies everywhere because when the car caught on fire and it spread that fire all around several people burned to death in the vicinity of where the car landed there were just mangled bodies all over the place one spectator that was standing by the grandstands heard a loud explosion, then felt the wheels of the car flying over his head. He bent down to cover himself and looked to his side and saw a man become decapitated before pieces of the car hit him and he was knocked out cold. So basically, he managed to look over, saw the, we saw the, the car have the crash, saw it flying through the air, realized it was coming at him, ducked and looked to his right and watched as a piece of the car decapitated the guy next to him, completely took his head off before being knocked unconscious. He then woke up a few seconds later, and it, he said it felt like he was back on the battlefield in all sauce, and it sounded and it felt like an artillery round had gone off nearby them. It felt He said it felt the same as when his unit had been hit by an artillery round while fighting in France during World War II, and the area looked extremely similar with body parts and blood and screams and agony everywhere. There are stories of people just wandering around. One woman was seen carrying the headless body of her child. One small child was said that her sister and mother were dead and she wanted to go home. One kid was just standing there holding the lifeless body of her mother. Ambulances then began to arrive en masse to take the wounded to the hospital. It was such a struggle to get the ambulances to the area that one ambulance just pulled onto the track to tend to the wounded there and a race car maneuvered around it because the race was still going on. Oh yes, the entire time while they are trying to deal with all of these dead and wounded people, this burning car sitting on the wall, the damaged car of Macklin that's sitting further down the track, the race is still going. There are cars driving by at high rates of speed not knowing what just happened or what just transpired. About 15 minutes after the accident, 
the press box at the racetrack received word that there were five confirmed fatalities. One of the journalists walked down to confirm with someone at the scene if that was the correct number and came back with the confirmed deaths up to 15. After about 30 minutes and trying to comfort LeVay's wife, John Fitch had gone to call his wife to tell her that it was not him driving the car that had crashed. While he was on the phone, he overheard a reporter saying the death toll for the crash was up to 63 confirmed. This would have been about 30 minutes after the accident. Now think about that. It's only been 30 minutes, and they've already confirmed 63 dead. That means that they are confirming two people dead every minute. Imagine the trauma that are that has been sustained by those people to be able to confirm the dead that quickly. Like, it doesn't usually take... It takes a while to confirm that someone is dead, especially when you have at this point 63 dead and probably at least a couple hundred injured you have to work through the chaos and the mass panic and people running away from the disaster to realize that there are dead people and many of them are likely dismembered in various terrible ways so it's it's not a very good confirmed number but that is 30 minutes after we have a 63 confirmed dead that is extremely fast for that many dead now john fitch going to the call his wife to let her know that he was not the one driving the car adds an interesting twist to this story because the race director did not announce on the intercom that there was a crash and there were civilian fatalities they didn't announce that over the racetrack intercom because they thought that if they announced it, then all of the people all the way around the eight and a half mile track would try and come to the scene of the crash to see what there was to see. And it would become congested and they couldn't get anyone in to do rescues and all of that. So they just didn't tell anybody. But there were reporters there and their reporters were calling out to their home countries and everywhere else to let them know that there was this massive crash that killed a ton of civilians. So the first radio report of this crash went out at about 7.30. So the, the crash happens at 6.30. The first radio report goes out over Europe at 7.30, that there are confirmed civilian casualties at this point of at least 60. So you now have terrified family members calling this tiny town of Le Mans in France, trying to find out if their family members are alive, if they're injured, or if they've died in this crash. And then you have family members in Le Mans, the actual spectators, trying to call their families back home to let them know that, no, I'm fine, I'm not injured, or, you know, so-and-so's dead, or whatever. Le Mans is a tiny town. They don't have that many uh, telephone switchboards. It's still manual switching of lines. They don't have that many telephone lines. So the line to get to call someone ended up being several hours long because thousands of people were trying to call home because the start-finish line is a very popular part of every track, so there's going to be a ton of people there, and there was a large grandstand there. Incredibly, inexplicably, I'm not sure what word you want to use, but the race did not stop. It wasn't even red-flagged briefly while they cleaned up the crash. They used black flags to slow the drivers down to about 50 miles per hour or so in that one section of the track, 
but the drivers admit they fudged the racing speed up as they drove past each time. So if it was 50 miles an hour one lap, they would do 60 the next lap, and then 70, and then 80, and then 90, and then eventually they weren't even slowing down. None of them were told how bad the crash was at all until after the race. At almost the same time, another vehicle had actually flipped upside down and was burning a little ways up the track from where the LeVay crash was, so it really didn't seem all that bad to those still racing. They couldn't see the grandstands from how low the car sat on the field or on the track, so they couldn't really, you know, tell that there were civilian injuries in the crash. They thought that his car had just landed and burst into flames on the actual uh, em- the, the embankment between the grandstands and the track. They didn't realize that it had actually gone into the grandstands, hit a concrete wall, and then ended up back on the embankment. The reasons given for the race continuing are as follows, each slightly more ridiculous than the last. Number one, they did not want all the spectators to leave all at once and clog the roads so ambulances couldn't arrive. Number two, the British had an air show accident that killed 30 spectators and they didn't stop their race, which is not the best. You didn't stop yours, so I'm not stopping mine is not the best example to use or excuse to use for not stopping your crash that killed at this point 80 something spectators. Number three, the racing teams could have sued them for lots of money. Yes, technically, I guess you could say that they could sue you for lots of money, but the spectators could also sue you for lots of money for having essentially zero safety measures in place. And then number four, and this was one that was really said by the race director, the race must go on. That is that is not an excuse at all, period. That you can't, no, it, it doesn't have to go on. When, when 84 people die, 84 to 87 people die, you can and should stop the race, at least to clean it up and then decide whether or not you want to continue on. In the end, between 84 to 87 spectators plus Pierre Levey died in the disaster. Well over 100 were injured in the crash. John Fitch would go on to plead with the team manager to plead with the owners of Mercedes to pull all of their cars from the race. His reasoning was multifold, but one of them was the terrible look of a German automobile manufacturer continuing to race after dozens of French had died, which is absolutely a fair way to look at it considering World War II had only been over for about 10 years. Winning a French race after a French driver died driving a German car would likely have not gone over well in the post-war atmosphere of Europe. Eventually, early in the morning around 1.45 a.m., Mercedes made the decision to quietly pull all their cars out of the race. At the time, the remaining Mercedes cars were running in first and third place. Mercedes also approached Jaguar to pull their cars as well in solidarity with the victims of the crash, but the English manufacturer essentially told them to pound sand. Mercedes-Benz would withdraw from all motor racing until 1999 as a direct result of this crash. Several countries would ban auto racing for the year until mass safety improvements could be made. Switzerland banned auto racing until just last year in June of 2022. There was no racing in Switzerland from 1955 until 2022, specifically because of this crash. An inquiry was formed and drivers, spectators, and race officials gave testimony to attempt to determine fault for the crash. In the end, it was ruled a tragic racing accident and no fault was laid on any party. 
Of course, the Jaguar blamed Mercedes and Austin Healey by saying they and Macklin were not competent drivers and that Macklin's move to get around Hawthorne was dangerous and that LeVay was not fit to be racing in a car as fast as the 300 SLR. Mercedes-Benz blamed Jaguar and said that Hawthorne cut off Macklin and caused the accident by being careless with his braking and waiting until the last second to pit. Now, there is video footage of this crash, and I'm going to be honest, I've watched a lot of racing in my life. It is hard to blame anyone but Hawthorne. Essentially, Hawthorne gave Macklin no option but to ram the back of his car or send it into the dirt, which would have put his car into the wall. In a split-second decision like that, Macklin had very few good options. He just happened to choose the absolute worst of all bad options. So, if you think about this. Now, they're traveling at about 150 miles an hour. Macklin was going a little bit slower because his car wasn't as powerful and it was in a different class. So, one of the things I didn't mention about the 24 Hours of Le Mans is that they have different classes for each car. So there's the top class, which is the one that generally competes for the actual win, and then there's some prototype classes for things that are experimental cars and things like that. Like this year, NASCAR entered one of their their cars in the 24 Hour of Le Mans and in a, as a prototype. Um, so the Austin Healey car was one of those lower classes that was driving at a much slower rate. So when they came up on this corner, what should have happened was in the previous lap, Hawthorne's pit crew should have notified him that he was coming into pit this next lap. That way he could have prepared himself instead of going around Macklin's car after they came out of that turn on pit the pit straightaway, he could have just stayed there. Like he could have just stayed behind Macklin pit behind him it wouldn't have been that big of a deal because he needed to slow down anyway so he could have and should have probably been notified by his pit crew beforehand that he needed to pit and he needed to stay behind Macklin and just do it that way it would have been a little bit slower but it was two and a half hours into the race you still have 21 hours 20 hours to go you don't need to you, you don't, a couple seconds here and there is not going to kill you. You still have plenty of time to make that back up, especially considering you don't know what's going to happen with the rest of the race. Um, when he went around Macklin, what he could have done was saw that the pit lane that he needed to go into pit, and instead of slamming on his brakes and cutting over, he could have said, okay, I'm going to pit next time around. That also would have been a much better option. Because, again, he slammed on his brakes. He knew that he had better brakes. He, all of these racers' car know everything else about everyone else's cars. You don't go into a race not knowing what your, other, what your opponent's cars are capable of. So he would have known full well that all of these other cars, or a lot of the other cars, would have drum brakes. And he had been racing long enough that he would know the pitfalls of drum brakes and know that it has a much... Um, longer stopping time than the disc brakes that he was currently driving with had. So when he went around Macklin, realized late that he needed to go into the pits and then slammed on his brakes, he essentially brake checked Macklin, who barely had brakes to use. Hawthorne put Macklin in a very bad situation. That corner 
when when he cut over in front of Macklin, Macklin slammed on his brakes and wiggled a little bit into the dirt. And on the video, you can see a little bit of the dirt kick up into the air. And then he comes back towards the left to try and go around Hawthorne instead of hit him. On the video, you can see very clearly that he gets extremely close to the back of that Jaguar. He didn't really have much option. It was hit Hawthorne, hit the inside wall, or cut it back over into the track. Now, should he have looked in his rearview mirror and seen if someone else was coming before he cut it back over? Yes. Could you really theoretically have that split-second decision-making of do I shift over and hit somebody or do I look behind me to make sure I'm not going to hit anybody? Because he could feel his brakes locking up. He could feel that it the brakes were starting to fail and he wasn't going to be able to stop in time. So it's either plow into the back of this car in front of me or kick it over and try and get around without hitting him. I kind of can't fault him for the kick it over and try and get around getting hit or hitting the back of the car in front of him, especially a Jaguar, especially the car in the lead, uh, even though he did just cut you off and then slam on his brakes in front of you. LeVay had, there was there was absolutely nothing he could have done. He maybe, maybe could have driven out wider, but where he hits Macklin's car, he's already almost to the outside wall. So, there wasn't really much he could do. He could have maybe slowed down when he saw that Hawthorne kicked it over in front of Macklin and Macklin had to slam on his brakes, but it's very likely that he had no idea. Like, he had absolutely no idea that, that Macklin was coming over and that Hawthorne had slammed on his brakes to pit. So he was, he was host from the very beginning. He was going to hit him no matter what. The fact that he climbed the back of his car and launched into the air is just an unfortunate example of how one tiny location of the car can make it between life and death. Now Fangio, Fangio went to the grave saying that LeVay saved his life because he had no idea that it was coming. He saw LeVay stick his arm in the air and he instinctively braked. When he saw his arm go up in the air, he instinctively braked and slowed down and was able to dive towards the inside and just barely missed Macklin's car coming back across the track to hit the inside pit wall. He just barely made it through. And he credits LeVay in that split second where he stuck his arm up in the air to we don't know if he was signaling that he was going to go left around Macklin's car or if he was trying to warn Fangio that there was a car and there it was going to be a wreck and he needed to stop. We don't know. Fangio swears up and down that he was doing it to save his life and that he did save his life. And he, that very likely did. It very much did because had he not, had Fangio not braked, he likely also would have hit Macklin's car and it also might have launched him into the air and made this catastrophic crash significantly worse. As far as laying blame for this crash, I think a good chunk of it needs to be laid at the feet of Mike Hawthorne, unfortunately. Cutting over in front of somebody and slamming on your brakes when you know full well that they will not be able to brake as well as you are is just a terrible idea. I, I understand that he needed to pit. I understand that he needed to change drivers. But when you pass somebody and then get in front of them and immediately brake, you can't, you can't do that and expect a good... 
at the very least he was going to get rear-ended. He was his car was going to be damaged at the very least. He was lucky that his car was not rear-ended. He was lucky he was not involved in that crash at all. I think that when he got out of the car after coming back around for that lap they forced him to do, he was inconsolable and yelling that it was all his fault. It was my fault. It was my fault. It was my fault. He later changed his story for the inquiry and said, oh, I had nothing to do with it. But he knew in that moment that he he screwed up, that he should not have braked. He should have continued on and pit the next lap. It, that's just sometimes it happens in racing. Um, it happened a lot in the 50s. Cars, crashes like this happened a lot in the 50s. And unfortunately, different technologies at the time led to this disaster being as bad as it was. But yeah, they did continue on with the race. Uh, Hawthorne ended up winning the race pretty comfortably. Um, there was essentially no celebration for obvious reasons. There were photographs of Hawthorne smiling and drinking champagne, which made it into French newspapers with a less than happy uh, news article title. Uh, but Hawthorne did end up winning the race. After the 1955 Le Mans disaster, at least three racers would retire after this race, never to race again as a direct result of witnessing the crash. One of them was John Fitch, the co-driver of Pierre Levet. But Fitch wasn't done with automobiles. He became an engineer and designed the guardrails that are seen in almost every country. He also designed the sand barrels seen at the end of guardrails on highways that act as crash energy absorption. So those big yellow barrels that are full of sand and air that you see cars occasionally crash into when it's snowy and all that, that just splinter apart, those are there to absorb energy from the crash so they don't end up impaling themselves on the guardrails that are sticking out. So John Fitch, the, the co-driver of Pierre Levey, the guy that was supposed to get in the car right before or right as he pit, he designed those barrels. He also designed the guardrails that are on the sides of essentially every American highway. The ones with the, the kind of wave in the middle. You know what I'm talking about? He he also designed those as an engineer after his racing career was done. And then, obviously, after this crash, massive safety changes were made throughout racing in general, but especially at Le Mans. So the changes they made to the circuit de Sarte, they widened pit road considerably, which removed the kink at the start of pit lane. So that turn that caused a, that that sent because if it hadn't been a turn there and he had just kind of he'd gone around him and he'd hit it, he likely Pierre Levey's car likely would have landed in the actual racing surface. It probably would have killed Pierre Levey, but you likely wouldn't have the civilian kit catastrophe that you have had that kink not been there because there was that right hand turn and the way that the, the location where this happened because they were going through that turn Hawthorne came in front of Macklin Macklin kicked it to the left as they're going through that turn so LeVay had to kick it even farther to the left and hit the left side the driver's side of Macklin's car which put him at a perfect angle to go right into the grandstands because of the way the track was laid out. So when they widened the pit straightaway, they eliminated that kink 
thereby allow not allowing cars to launch in that area and end up in the grandstands again. They also made a deceleration lane for the pits. So instead of coming off of high speed and slamming on your brakes and then going into the pits, you have an actual area where you can slow down where you're not in the racing surface and you don't have these cutting off situations that end up with a car in the grandstands and 84 people dying. They also tore down the grandstands from where they were and moved them many feet back and put a ditch between the racing surface and the grandstands as well as another barrier. So now the cars have to go a significantly farther distance to actually make it into the grandstands, which thankfully they had not. There were a bunch of changes that came out as the result of this disaster that took a little bit of time because, you know, progress is anything but fast. So roll cages requiring drivers to have seat belts and harnesses and wear helmets all the time and goggles and they actually enclosed race cars. All of those eventually came about after this disaster. and This disaster was one of the catalysts for all of those safety measures to come about. Um, in the United States, AAA, the, the AAA you think of when you hear AAA, was actually the, uh, the governing body for sanctioning races. And after the 1955 uh, Le Mans disaster, they decided that they were no longer going to do that. So the United States Auto Club, which USAC, uh, if you follow sprint car racing at all, you know what USAC is, was founded in Speedway, Indiana because of that and to take the place of AAA who quit doing it after the, the disaster at Le Mans. So there was a lot of big changes in racing because of this disaster. Anyway, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. As always, you can follow me on all the social medias. It's Disastrous History Everywhere, and I appreciate you guys significantly. Um, if you're still listening, which I know that a lot of you will stop by now, I appreciate you guys so much. Thank you so much for dealing with my weird episode release schedules and all of that. I, I know. I'm sorry. I'm trying to get back into the swing of it. My life has been an absolute chaos lately. I uh, hopefully am in a position now that I can start releasing episodes a little bit more regularly. So um, I'm going to try and release a full episode every other Tuesday or every other Wednesday. I'm sorry, every other Wednesday and then a Patreon episode every other Wednesday as well. So one week will be a full episode, one week will be a Patreon episode, one week will be a full episode, so I can get kind of a mixture of both in there. So as always, remember to stay safe and always check your smoke detector batteries.